Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of this new show, Engineering the Future, from the School of Engineering and Applied Science at Washington University in St. Louis, otherwise known as WashU. I'm your host, Dean Aaron Bobick. In this podcast series, we'll explore some of the world's more daunting problems and discuss how engineers, who, by the way, are some of the world's best scientists, are working to solve these problems through research, innovation, collaboration, and education. One of the great things about being an engineering dean is that I'm continually amazed by the advances my engineering colleagues around the world are making that address some of the great challenges facing society. The domains range from energy and automation to the implications of nanoparticles in medicine and agriculture. My goal of this series is to take you, the listener, along for the ride as I learn about these remarkable developments. Our first episode focuses on the future of energy. The recent humanitarian disasters that have ravaged the U.S., Mexico, and the Caribbean reminded us all of modern society's dependence on electricity and fuel for everything from refrigeration to transportation. To feed that dependence, our world is still relying on easy, cheap access to fossil fuels and technologies first developed more than a century ago. But over the last several decades, we've come to understand the environmental and health challenges posed by the extensive use of such combustion-based energy sources. Everyone has heard the discussions about the possible impact on climate caused by such use. But now the health and environmental effects of the fine particles produced by energy combustion have become an even clearer concern. How our energy sources and uses evolve will have dramatic impact on the quality of all of our lives. What is the future of coal and other fossil fuels? The question I want to explore today is, what are both the near-term and mid-term futures of energy around the globe, and what technological discoveries and innovation are taking place to help determine that future? To help answer these questions, I'm beginning my conversations with Professor Vijay Ramani, the Roma and Raymond Whitkoff Chair Professor here at WashU. He is also the director of our Solar Energy and Energy Storage Center, and his own research focuses on grid-scale storage, a topic I suspect we'll be discussing shortly. So welcome, Vijay. You have the incredible good fortune to be the very first guest ever on Engineering the Future. Thanks for making the time. I'm honored. So let me start off with a pretty basic question. In the next 20 or, say, 30 years, can the world stop using fossil fuels? No, it would not be possible for us to stop or divest completely from fossil fuels in that time frame or even in more extended time frames, uh, uh, even though uh, that might be desirable to some, but practically it is not possible to do so. Well, why not? The magnitude of the problem or the magnitude of the energy landscape, it's, it's massive, and replacing the distribution network available for fossil fuels as well as the availability of fossil fuels with alternate technologies in toto is, is simply something that cannot be done, even if economics was not a problem. But having said that, if you look at the economic aspect of, of replacing fossil fuels, the, the word which comes to mind is stranded assets. So you already have invested a huge, huge amount of money into building this massive infrastructure, which is entirely fossil driven, and to essentially divest away from that and reinvest an equivalent or larger amount of money to uh, replace it with a completely uh, renewable-based infrastructure. And this is not to say that we should make no efforts to, uh, you know, to replace fossils where we can with perhaps cleaner technologies, but at the same time, to, to aim for a complete replacement, I think, would be unrealistic. 
What percentage of the world's current energy budget is uh, fossil fuel, approximately? If you take all the sectors together, it would be on the order of 80 to 90 percent. Wow. So, so basically, this is a challenge of just overwhelming scale. The magnitude of what needs to be replaced is so large that, in some sense, it's not physically possible to do it worldwide in 20 or 30 years. All right. Well, let's talk just a little bit about the U.S. This last October, St. Louis, where we are now, joined, uh, I think it's 46 other cities across the U.S., committed to 100 percent clean energy by 2035. And the last time I checked, that's like 17 years from now. Can we get there? If by clean energy they mean clean fossil fuels as well as renewables, then there is some hope of getting uh, meeting the target. But if, if by clean energy they mean 100% renewable-powered uh, city of St. Louis in 17 years, I think that's probably a step too far. But the issue really is we need very good baseload power generation for our society to be able to function. And at this point, renewables simply do not provide baseload power generation. They are extremely intermittent. And so to have 100% of your energy needs meet, met completely from renewables, you would need to have energy storage of the magnitude that would be economically challenging to achieve. As opposed to saying we're going to get to X percentage by, of renewables by whatever date, let's assume that what we want to do is essentially move as effectively as possible to renewables. What are the biggest barriers to such large-scale conversion, not just the economics, but also in terms of uh, the technologies, in terms of where we are versus where we need to be? From a technical perspective, renewable energy is very well advanced, and it's not very likely that you're going to get much further in terms of efficiencies. The problem is with solar, it's as simple as sun shines during the day and not at night, so it's extremely variable. And so if you need to have solar energy powering your entire city all through the time 24-7, you just have to make sure that you have adequate storage capacity so that when the sun doesn't shine, you still have electricity. Wind is even more intermittent. You could have variations on the order of seconds, minutes, and it's kind of very difficult to predict what those variations will be. And so one of the main challenges with very large-scale implementation of uh, intermittent renewables would be the storage uh, challenge. So the question of you know how do you store these electrons for when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow. What are our, sort of the fundamental challenges that have to be overcome for that scale storage to really become uh, viable? There are multiple technical approaches to actually store the electricity. I mean, a very simple one to understand is pumped hydro. I mean, if you have uh, certain geographical features, you can essentially pump water up an incline when you have electricity available and just run it down the incline when you need to make electricity have a turbine. So pumped hydro is easy to understand, but of course it's geographically limited. And some may argue not because you can always dig a hole and you know store water there and pump it up and down. That doesn't sound very... Uh sophisticated or effective? It isn't, uh, but it, it's reasonably effective, uh, except that, of course, you have to deal with the compressor efficiency, so the round-trip efficiency is going to be impacted by that. I remember hearing that in China they were install installing something called uh, vanadium flow batteries as a way of handling uh, grid-scale storage for renewables. So what are flow batteries, and are vanadium flow batteries sort of the path forward for the future? You're correct in that flow batteries are being extensively used for grid-scale storage, at least at a demonstration scale these days. So a flow battery is like any other kind of battery, for example, a lithium battery or so, with the exception that the energy of that battery, of the vanadium flow battery, is stored outside of it in a large tank, or rather in two large tanks, which store vanadium salts, which are dissolved in acid. 
Uh, and the way the battery works is when you pump these solutions through the battery itself, the, the central battery itself, separated by a membrane, you actually allow electrons to be stored in and out, and the ions move through this membrane back and forth when you charge or discharge the battery. So it's a relatively elegant device. Can we just use those to make renewables more reliable? Well, yeah, except that they're a bit expensive and that vanadium in itself is a very expensive component. And so if you use vanadium as your active medium to store the electricity, then the technology becomes a bit too expensive to adopt, uh, well past the, the cost target set by the Department of Energy. And so the solution that we're proposing to that is we go to cheaper elements like iron and chromium, but when we do that, we run into the issue of the membrane, which really is key, because since you have two different components now, iron and chromium, the membrane would let them pass through and go to the other side, and they can't be recovered. Uh, and so we are actually working on a membrane that prevents these ions, iron, chromium, et cetera, the cheaper ions, from moving from one side to the other. And that's how we intend to make this technology cheaper and more affordable. So the key to moving towards flow batteries being able to be adopted in a larger way and more affordable is to figure out how to make those membranes such that we can use less expensive materials in the medium uh, and still have it be reliable. Absolutely. How far away do you think we are from having a grid-scale storage flow battery technology that, if people want to deploy, is sort of effective and affordable and, I guess I use the word resilient, right? They have to be reliable and they have to last for a while. How, how far away are we from, from having that? There's a two-part answer to that question because the economics differs based on the location. If you look at a country like the United States where the grid is pretty well established, you are competing against electricity coming out of the wall at 10 cents a kilowatt hour, which is probably what you pay here in Missouri. You're probably at least a decade away minimum because of the cost aspect of it. But if you go to Southeast Asia or to India where you have issues where there are places and many places impacting tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people, where the grid simply doesn't extend far enough, then the economics becomes a lot easier because now you're competing against the cost of extending the grid and I not see. the cost of, you know, uh, the power plant. And so in those, what I would call weak grid sectors, the cost that people or the government would be willing to bear to introduce these technologies as part of distributed solutions as opposed to a unified solution would be a lot higher than what the DOE predicts for what is required for the United States. So that $100 a kilowatt hour number was for the United States. Before we move to talking about changing things so that using fossil fuels can be a, a cleaner operation, you know, when I was a kid, we were sure that we were just going to have nuclear power plants everywhere, and that was going to save the world. And even when I was in, in college just 100 years ago, you could demonstrate that nuclear had the ability to produce enough electricity. We had the resources for many hundreds of years in a way that was effective. And then, of course, a variety of events, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl happened. And uh, from what I can tell, it just became politically untenable. Do you think the energy budget requirements, the needs, the, the availabilities are going to force us to go back to nuclear at some point, whether we like it or not? I don't think so. I don't think it's going to force us to go back to nuclear. And if you look at the U.S., and if you want to review the facts, the last nuclear power plant was approved in the early 90s. And once you get approval, it takes about 10 to 12 years to build one of these online. So it's an extremely slow process. And a nuclear power plant is a gigawatt at most, maybe 500 megawatts a gigawatt at most. So if you're talking about using nuclear to replace legacy fossils, you need to be building or, or commissioning a new nuclear plant a week for the next 20 years. And to me, even if the political bill was there, which is probably not there in this country, nor is it there in Japan, nor is it there in Europe, 
uh, it exists in abundance in places like India and China, and France is about 80% nuclear already. So there, there are some countries where politically it's acceptable, some countries it's not. But even assuming the political go-ahead is given, to use nuclear as an option to perhaps replace the existing legacy uh, fossil fuel network, it would just involve a tremendous investment of time and money, and it would be the equivalent to opening a new plant every single week, maybe for the next 10 years or 12 years. There are many countries which are pursuing nuclear, and for the smaller countries, it adds up to a more appreciable fraction, but for the larger countries, it's going to be very difficult to have it replaced. So basically, you're saying it's not inevitable to go to nuclear based upon our energy needs. It's just potentially part of the portfolio. Yes, it will be part of the portfolio. And uh, there are some countries, uh, you know, Germany is one example, Japan is another, where it's becoming politically very, very unpopular sure, uh, to sure. go nuclear. But neighbor, uh, neighboring France has absolutely no problem with it. So let's, let's take it as a given that we uh, can't get to all renewables quickly. Then the question becomes is, uh, what can we do to make fossil fuels in the U.S. and in the world sort of less damaging, uh, both in terms of immediate health challenges and uh, potential environmental impact? What, what are some of the steps that we need to take that can help us get to a more effective and safer use of fossil fuels? If you look at the primary sources which are used for electricity generation, you got coal and you got natural gas. So um, Not oil. Uh, well, for electricity generation, not as much. I mean, for transportation, quite a bit, of course, but for electricity generation, you know, it's not, not as much. And so the absolute easiest thing you could do is switch from coal to natural gas. It's still, it's still fossil. It's still legacy. You have to retrofit, of course, and there's a cost associated with retrofitting an existing plant. And this country has actually moved in that way. I mean, if you look at why there are no more coal plants being built, uh, well, that's the reason. It's just not economical for them to, com to compete against natural gas at this point in time. But that could change again if the natural gas prices rocket up. Right. Well, coal becomes economical again. So again, th so the coal versus non-coal is not a political issue. It's an economic issue. And remember, these plants are built and amortized over 30 years. And so it's very difficult to go to a coal plant and tell them, you got to shut down because they can't do it. It's, it's, they have to recover the sunk cost somehow. And so there are small amendments they can make you know, to make it cleaner burning. They can add on attachments, which essentially take out some of the more damning uh, pollutants which come out. And I think a lot of that work is already in progress because there are regulations in place to make sure that what comes out of the coal plant today is actually a lot cleaner than what used to come back even 15 years ago. And that's in the U.S. Now, in a place like India, things have changed quite a bit. If you look at the coal sector, the thermal power sector, it's extremely distressed right now. Even the existing coal plants are running at 50% capacity or less. And this is not the only reason, but one of the reasons has been that the cost of producing power through coal is actually greater in India today than the cost of producing power through renewables, solar and wind. It's a, it's a complicated calculation, but there are two approaches. One is you retrofit and go to natural gas. That's, again, not possible everywhere. Uh, the other option is you have to add on uh, attachments, which would essentially make it a cleaner burning uh, coal plant. We also have this problem that we have, I don't know, last time I checked, it was somewhere on the order of 100 million cars driving around the United States. They're currently burning uh, fossil fuels. What are the technological things we need to start thinking about doing in order to make the burning of fossil fuel as least damaging to our health and environment as possible? One option, and it's, it's, it's still not something which can be done overnight, is essentially to electrify the transportation sector, and that would involve essentially replacing internal combustion engines or a sizable fraction of them with batteries. Remember, you're still, the electrons that 
charge the battery are still produced on the legacy grid, which is essentially fossils, and that's fine. But now you have options of containing the emissions associated with generating the electricity at one point source or a series of large point sources, as opposed to a distributed you know, 100 million tailpipes. And so that could be uh, one approach that you could consciously move towards uh, in terms of minimizing the emissions. A lot of folks say, well, moving to electric vehicles doesn't really fix the problem because you're still going to burn stuff to make the electricity. But what you're saying is that if we create the electricity at a centralized location, you have the opportunity to control both the pollutants in the air and carbon or other things that you don't want to have go into the atmosphere. You can do it at that location, whereas you couldn't possibly do it as effectively on every tailpipe. Exactly. And the engineering exists today to be able to control those particulates at source in large plants, you know, and it's much, much harder to scale those techniques down and fit them on every individual tailpipe. Somehow, coal is the evil fossil fuel, and in some sense, the most controversial. So here's a simple question to start with. We said the world cannot easily, or maybe at all, stop burning fossil fuels in 20 or 30 years. Can the world stop burning coal in the next 20 or 30 years? I would very much doubt it, uh, to be honest, because, again, it's a question of replacement. What do you replace it with? I mean, today, if you look at the amount of electricity generated from coal, it's still a very appreciable factor of all the electricity generated. And also, you, you got, don't forget heating requirements, too. I mean, in winter, you, you know, houses need heat, and you know, some of that is gas-fired, some of it is oil-fired. But in other parts of the world, you know, there's a lot of coal-based coal stoves used for cooking. And the, so it's very, very difficult to completely divest from an established legacy technology and, and I could give you a flippant answer and say, sure, if you can find enough natural gas and distribute it all around to replace all the coal. You could, but it's very difficult to do so. BJ, thank you for joining us. I think it really helped uh, sort of set the stage for what we uh, need to do. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. After my conversation with BJ, it was clear to me that for at least the next 20 or 30 years, we can't stop burning coal if we think about it at a global uh, perspective. So then the question is, can we burn coal more safely in terms of public health hazards and near-term environmental damage? And for fossil fuels in general, and coal in particular, what can we do to reduce the overall carbon impact? To find the answer to these questions and others regarding, well, basically burning stuff to produce energy, I reached out to Professor Richard Axelbaum, who, not so coincidentally, is also in the Energy, Environmental, and Chemical Engineering Department here at WashU. Rich holds the Stifel and Quinette Jens Professor of Environmental Engineering Science Chair. And if you think that's easy to read, you're, you're mistaken. So, Rich, welcome. Thank you. Um, can you just say a little bit about your research in general, sort of over the long term, and uh, specifics uh, more recently? Sure. I've been involved in energy research for 27 years at Washington University and have been involved in a wide range of areas of energy, many of them being related to fossil fuels. But actually, more recently, in the late uh, 2008, uh, began focusing a major part of my effort on addressing coal and how we can utilize coal in an environmentally sustainable way. As I think you know, your colleague Vijay Ramani says we're going to be burning fossil fuels, including coal, in the world for quite a while. Uh, so I guess the first question is, do you agree? I do. Uh, coal has a, the characteristics that, number one, it's pretty ubiquitous around the world. The major centers that require large amounts of energy, China, India, Germany, South Africa, the United States, have abundant uh, coal reserves. 
Uh, that in itself is not a reason to utilize them, but it certainly is a benefit of having coal in that there's, from a global perspective, the major challenge of energy is that we need it. It's our lifeblood, and we need to have sustain sustainable quantities of it and reliable quantities of it, and having it distributed uh, throughout the world is a means of ensuring that the world has access to coal. The world does not have wind resources worldwide, doesn't have solar resources worldwide, doesn't have oil, gas, or even nuclear resources that are available worldwide. So there is a uniqueness about coal in terms of being available. Uh, when it comes to actually uh, storing coal, it also has a unique feature in that if I want to have a source of energy that is not at risk, I can take a field and pile coal on it, and that field can last me six months. And I know that it's going to be there for me. There's not another single source of energy in the world that can make that statement. So when we're talking about security, our national security, to know we have a resource that we can just dump on the ground and it's there to pick it up when we want it is of enormous value. So in some sense, it was able to drive this um explosive growth in the consumption of energy because, frankly, the energy was just there. Is that, that a fair characterization? That's great. It was there uh, when we wanted it and where we wanted it. There are lots of fossil fuels. There is um, a petroleum-based, natural gas, uh, even wood. Why, why is coal always singled out as like the, the evil, worst possible fossil fuel? I've pondered this myself quite a bit, and I can certainly give you my opinion. Number one, I think historically, coal was not regulated until the 70s. So we have pictures and memories of polluted cities. We have pictures of, of China, Beijing, and seeing polluted cities. And since we remember the pictures of polluted cities being, be, being due to coal, then we project that those polluted cities must be due to coal. In uh, China right now, the new power plants are as clean as a natural gas burning power plant in terms of criteria pollutants, the local emissions. Uh, nonetheless, we consider the pollution in China being due to coal power plants. In fact, when coal is involved in pollution, it's due to coal for cooking stoves and for heating and not for power plants. So we have the ability to have clean skies with coal-burning power plants. We have that in St. Louis with 80% of our energy from coal and very clean skies. So intrinsically, coal doesn't have to have smoke coming out of the stacks, but we associate it with that. It's also, it's just, it looks dirty. It gets on your hands. A coal miner has the black under his, uh, on his cheeks. So we have this vision that uh, coal is dirty uh, from our memories, and it's hard to shake that. So there's this question of essentially the particulate that coal produces and some of the chemicals that go right into the atmosphere that have uh, immediate uh, health effects. And having been to China multiple times in the last couple of years, you know, there are times when because of coal-burning plants generating heat that the atmosphere is very difficult to breathe in. Is it economically plausible to just upgrade that so that they don't have that problem? It is, and they are. In other words, what they are doing right now is they are taking their older plants, their less efficient polluting plants, and replacing them with highly efficient non-polluting plants. As you know, the term clean coal is controversial. 
And I, my sense is that it's controversial because you can talk about clean coal when you're talking about those particulates and those chemicals, but not about the carbon, uh, the carbon dioxide. So where are we in the ability to uh, have less carbon dioxide emitted from fossil fuel plants, uh, both LNG, which produces, I presume, a reasonable amount of carbon dioxide as well. Wh where are we on our ability to, to do this effectively and not produce as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere? Well, we've had a number of demonstration sites. We have two ongoing sites right now, one in Canada, the Boundary Dam facility, also one in Texas, the Petronova facility, that have demonstrated that we can capture CO2 from power plants and use it for enhanced oil recovery uh, to be able to sequester it underground so it remains out of the atmosphere. So that technology has been demonstrated effectively. Uh, now the challenge is to be able to do that better and do it at a larger scale. Uh, right now it's, it's limited to specific applications, which, which what is what you would ex want to have starting off with a technology, identify the most promising use of that technology and apply it in that case. But to really be effective at reducing the CO2 emissions, it has to be at much broader scale. I know some folks are skeptical that the time frame is that we could get to that scale uh, sooner than we could get to some other solution that provides energy by not burning things. What is the time frame by which you think it becomes economically viable to be able to uh, burn fuels in a way that the carbon is not as uh, problematic as it is now. And presumably, you know, the politically viable is deeply, deeply tied to economically viable. In terms of being able to expand the scale of these units, that is doable today. The challenge is really economics right now. We're at the beginning of these technologies, and just like the beginning of solar and wind, the cost of those technologies was very expensive. If we looked at those costs today, we would say, well, there's no way we're going to do that. So if you look at the costs of carbon capture today, and we said we're not going to do that, then you know, we're stuck. But if we realize that if we have large-scale implementation of this, then, of course, the experience that we've gained from that, the economies of scale, will bring the price down. And, uh, of course, it's even needs to be brought down more than that because... Right now, we're talking about what we know in terms of technologies and just expanding the application of those. What we really want to be able to do is come up with radically improved technologies that actually bring that cost down. So so let's talk a little bit. Uh, this is supposed to be an engineering uh, show. What is the mechanism, the method, uh, generally the approach taken now? And what methods are being explored that you think might yield the most likely uh, advances that would uh, you know push this forward to the level that it has that it has to get the what you'd expect the first generation technologies were saying we have a power plant that power plant's emitting co2 we have to stop that emission from leaving so the approach to that is to have a chemical that can grab the co2 out of the exhaust capture it and then take it off that chemical and now you have a concentrated stream of CO2 that you can use for enhanced oil recovery or for sequestration. Uh, and that would be considered what I call a patch. 
Now, if you think about it, power plants have continuously patched. So they started off just producing power and particulates, NOx and SOx, all, all the pollutants just came out of the stack. People were happy to have the power, not as worried about the environment. As our technology, our, our economy has improved, we got more concerned about health effects. And so then we got rid of, we put a patch on the system to get rid of particulates, then a patch to get rid of the SOx. SOx being? I'm sorry, uh, sulfur dioxide sulfur-based, you know, acid rain. I was going to say, I grew up in New York, and I remember that acid rain was a big deal, and then eventually acid rain went away because they stopped, they did something in the Midwest that made us all very happy. That's right. They had new technologies, and they uh, switched fuels, and that combination really eliminated the issue in terms of acid rain. Uh, so, and so now we actually have another patch. Now we have to remove the CO2 on the back end. But as you take a basic, basic technology and just keep patching onto it, you end up just increasing the costs, and there's no intrinsic benefit to that. Uh, so what needs to happen now is there has to be an approach that recognizes our goal is not just to produce electricity. Our goal is to produce electricity and have zero emissions, meaning we have to do something with the CO2. And the most uh, promising approach is in utilizing it, for example, for enhanced oil recovery or sequestering it. So then the question is, how do you take coal and make electricity, but also be able to produce a stream of CO2 that you can sequester. And not from a patch, but from a redesign of the concept. So a redesign of how we burn coal. That's right. So for the naive, you, 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 you stick coal in something that can hold the heat, you light it, you capture the gas, then the gas goes through some things that remove some of the uh, particles that you don't want, some of the chemicals that you don't want, uh, but you didn't fundamentally change the burning. You're talking about changing the actual way it's burned. That's right. Yeah, in other words, when we started, we wanted to just produce electricity. Now, if you think about it, we have two products. One product is electricity. The other product is a stream of CO2 that we can either sell or dispose of. So then you think about the problem from that perspective, and things change. For example, what we do when we sell CO2 for enhanced oil recovery or sequester it is we have to pressurize it. So the existing approach, for example, the Petronova plant, is that they will capture the CO2 and then they put it in a compressor and compress it down to about 100 atmospheres. It's quite high pressure. And then they can stick it underground. However, what happens is once you actually know you have to pressurize anyway, you can now pressurize the power plant. So existing power plants don't operate under pressure. Your car operates under pressure. The plane, it operates under pressure. Existing power plants don't operate under pressure and that's just in inherited from the past. But now if we can operate the power plants under pressure, since we need to have pressure anyway, it doesn't cost us anything extra to have that pressure. In the past it would have, that's why we don't do it. But now when you have to have pressurized products, then you can do that at no additional cost. And then all of a sudden many benefits occur that allow you to redesign the power plant that can actually capture the CO2, produce electricity, at an efficiency comparable to what a plant would do when it was really just producing electricity. I only recently learned that we actually have, uh, I guess we have these domes that capture CO2 that's coming up from the earth, and they enter in these pipelines, and we pipe the CO2 around in order to then use it for various types of uh, oil exploration and uh, oil extraction. So I guess what you're talking about is that you could now capture the CO2 stream, and instead of having these domes and and uh, pipelines, et cetera, which, which I didn't know we, we had for CO2, you would be able to produce that directly. So there's now a, uh, an intrinsic value of the CO2 itself. Exactly right. Yeah, they're actually paying for that CO2 right now. 
So they could pay the power plant for that CO2. So, um, so is this going to happen? I believe so. My crystal ball is this challenge associated with the intermittency of wind and solar is going to become very evident to society. Right now, we're somehow believing it's gonna problem's going to go away, but it will not go away. Reliability is the fundamental point, and if we don't address reliability, then we're going to miss it. And so ultimately, you have to match supply and demand. It will become impossible to, for us to really be able to do that with intermittent sources. And so once that reality occurs, it's occurred in Germany, um, it will occur in, in the United States. And at that point, we have to have technologies available. Uh, and they have to be reliable technologies that are low carbon solutions. So we see it as we don't know when, we do know it will occur, and we need to have those solutions available when it does. Rich, thanks so much for uh, coming in and uh, uh, sharing with us. I, I, you know, it's one of these topics that is uh, tremendously politically charged. I think as from an engineering perspective, our goal is to make sure the world has as many uh, options as possible, and then we leave it to the folks who control uh, economy and political world uh, to make those decisions. But our, our goal is to give them uh, all the levers uh, that we can. So uh, thanks for the work you do, and uh, thanks for coming in. Thank you very much, Eric. So what have we learned today? Well, frankly, the first few things are a tad depressing. One is that the world, including the U.S., is not going to stop burning fossil fuels anytime soon. The energy requirements are just too large, the deployed infrastructure too expensive to replace quickly, and there are still real challenges to renewables being able to provide the reliable, resilient, 24-7 energy needed at scale. And if we consider the world and not just the U.S., coal is going to be an important energy source for many years as well. And these situations will exist regardless of consequence. But we also learned about some technical insights and innovations that are going to potentially help uh, overcome these challenges. Uh, we learned that flow batteries are being worked on in a way that can make them uh, more affordable and work at grid scale. And that, in fact, if you think about carbon burning a little bit differently, if you're not just producing electricity but also producing carbon dioxide, which is in turn used for other systems, that the way we leverage coal might, in fact, be environmentally possible. So it's, it's a very interesting set of opportunities. Well, that's it for today. This is Aaron Bobick, Dean of Engineering at WashU, and you've been listening to Engineering the Future. I look forward to chatting with you again.